They say life's a journey, don't they? And I think it's true. Becoming a Christian is certainly a journey, a journey towards faith, a journey from the heart towards God, although in fact he's very close to each one of us. And when we become Christians, we begin another journey, a journey of faith, going through life, walking with God. Well, today we're continuing our look at the Psalms of Ascent, 15 Psalms written for the journey, written to be sung as God's people, the Jews, journeyed to Jerusalem and up the hillside to the temple, the place where they encountered God together. It was a journey that replayed their salvation story, taking them from turning towards God to the very presence of God himself taking a physical journey as they were to refresh and revisit a spiritual journey that they have made, almost like a, pilgrim, a pilgrimage or a labyrinth. Today we're looking at Psalm 130, a psalm that takes us from despair and desperation to a place of confidence and hope and peace and freedom, a journey that takes us to a God who forgives. So whether you're on a journey towards faith or whether you're on the journey of faith, I think there's something in this for all of us, something that will take us on further in our journey or remind us of what God has already done, where we have journeyed. So come with me and take this journey today. We start where we are, with our broken humanity. Psalm 130 verses 1 and 2 says this, from the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. Hear my cry, O Lord. Pay attention to my prayer. Well, we all know our experiences of life can be up in the clouds or down in the depths. That's language that's familiar to us. There are experiences that are familiar to all of us. And the good news is that God always meets us right where we are. He starts with us where we are. Now, our Christian journey can begin in all sorts of ways. A search for meaning and purpose, perhaps a sense of unfulfillment, or even through life's troubles and difficulties. And becoming a Christian doesn't uh, take us away from having, experiencing life's ups and downs. But here in the psalm, there's something even deeper going on. The writer of the psalm here is not in trouble or difficulty. There are plenty of psalms where that's the case. But here, he is wrestling with guilt. A sense that he has done wrong. A sense that he is in need of someone to help him, to rescue him, to save him. And it's more than just a guilty feeling. It's the, the flood of wrong and the consequences of all that that can sweep life along and from which, for all of us, there's probably no escape. He's describing that awful awareness where nothing we can do can turn the clock back, can unsay what we said or stop what we did. The sense that I'm actually my own worst enemy and that self-help and self-improvement really isn't the answer. Well, I don't know about you, but when we start talking about guilt, I always go into comparison mode because I'm sure there are people that are worse than I am. But, you know, I think most of us 
deep inside, perhaps when we are on our own. And all the more if we can picture standing on our own in front of a holy God. I think all of us probably feel that we are not what we should be or even what we could be and that our best efforts don't seem to be enough. The real truth is I do need someone to save me, to rescue me. And even when we are Christians who've experienced God's rescuing power, we need to revisit forgiveness because of life, because we fail, because we forget, because we fall. We need to be reminded afresh of what God has done for us. We see it in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples where daily bread and forgiveness are mentioned together. I need daily forgiveness the same way I need daily bread. And so when the psalmist is in these depths, what does he do? Well, out of them, he cries to God because we have a God who forgives. In verses 3 and 4, he says, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. I wonder what's your picture of God? Do you see him like the, a smiling old man, a sort of Father Christmas character sitting on a throne in the heavens? Is he like a, a headmaster? Maybe an angry boss? Fault-finding, critical father? Or maybe you don't believe in God at all or you're not sure. As someone once said, I wonder what sort of God it is that you don't believe in. Even as Christians, our picture of who God is can be twisted by our experiences or our misunderstandings which form the lenses that we see the world through. So what sort of God does the psalmist cry to? Well, he was sure. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O oh Lord, could ever survive? God is not, as many people, including some Christians, think, a God who is sitting in heaven with his clipboard and his pencil, watching over us, marking us, just waiting for us to mess up where he can say, ha ha, gotcha. No, not at all. He's not trying to catch us out. The psalmist is crying to the God who offers forgiveness. But you offer forgiveness that we may learn to fear you. Jesus, we must say this so often, Jesus came to rescue us, not to condemn us. John 3.17 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God offers forgiveness. But it's like any other offer. It has to be received and used. I get all sorts of offers in my email inbox, but they are of no use at all to me if I don't actually use them. I have to take it up. And God does all this so that we may learn to fear him, not, not some sort of cringing, cowering, paralyzing fear, but an awe, an amazement, a wondering, a gratefulness, a, a reverence for this God. In fact, one Bible version puts it like that. Verse 4 says, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. 
As someone once said, those who have been forgiven are softened and humbled and overwhelmed by God's mercy. And they determine never again to sin against such a great and fearful goodness. They do sin, but in their deepest hearts, they do not want it. And when they do, they hurry back to God for deliverance. We have a God who meets us where we are. We have a God who forgives. And the psalmist then goes on to tell us that we have a place that we can stand. Verses 5 and 6. I'm counting on the Lord, he says. Yes, I'm counting on him. I've put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than centuries for the dawn. Yes, more than centuries long for the dawn. Whether we're on top of the mountain or whether we're down in the depths, we have a place to stand. But perhaps it's most important of all when we are in the depths. Counting on the Lord. To do what? Not to let us down. To keep his promises. The psalmist is counting on him. What are you counting on? Are you counting on your own skill and cleverness? Your friends, your health, your money? How reliable are they? I know my own skills and cleverness have limits. I know friends can let us down. Our health can break down. Our money can disappear in a moment. Where is the place you can stand, the rock that you can stand on, the person that you can count on? The psalmist tells us he's put his hope in God's word. That's God's promises, both in the Bible, through which we can come to know God, and ultimately in Jesus, who's described in the Bible as the word made flesh, made into human form. And it's not some vague hope either. He describes his counting, his longing, in terms of something concrete, like when sentries on night duty are waiting for the morning. They can't wait for the light to appear. And it may be a long way off, and it may be a long time coming. But one thing is for sure, it will come. Morning will come. It is certain. That's how confident he is. So we're encouraged to a place where we can stand to count on him. His promises are trustworthy. And that means, like the psalmist, we can have total confidence. Verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love. His redemption overflows. He himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. It's hard to remember sometimes that this was written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. But it tells us about the nature of God, what sort of God this is. And of course, that nature was revealed when Jesus came to show us what the Father was like. Why can we hope in the Lord? Because in Him, there is unfailing love. Just stop and think about that a minute. Unfailing love. Where apart from God can you find unfailing love? Love that never fails. Isn't that the love that we're all looking for? 
he describes God as his redemption overflows. Not just enough to rescue you, more than enough to rescue you. God's redemption, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, they're like the bottomless coffee you can get in some coffee shops, paid for by Jesus at great cost so that we can have as many refills as we want or need. His redemption overflows. He himself will redeem Israel. That's his people. That's why we can have confidence, because this is dependent on God himself doing it. God would do it through his one and only son, Jesus. Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, that's why redemption overflows. Plenty of it, more than enough for me, for you, for the whole world. Do you look around and see sin and brokenness as overwhelming? Romans 5.20 encourages us that where sin just grew and grew, grace grew even more. We are redeemed from every kind of sin, the psalmist says. That's effective. There's no domestos clause in this, uh, in this psalm. No kills 99% of all known germs. No hedging our bets just in case one of those little ones slip through and we get sued. No, no, no. He deals with every kind of sin. What Jesus has done covers it all. No specific sin is so huge. No catalogue of sins is so long that it can't be covered by what Jesus has done. There is forgiveness with God. And when God once speaks forgiveness, it can never be unspoken. Fear and doubt and misgiving may question it, but they cannot change it. We have arrived at our destination. We have climbed from desperation through trusting and waiting and into the assurance and encouragement and confidence that we have in God. Hope is here. Peace and freedom are here. Forgiveness is real. And forgiveness is one of the hallmarks of a Christian because it's one of the hallmarks of our Father in heaven. You might remember in verse 4, the psalm said, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. How can we with reverence serve our God? Well, by doing what he asks us to do. And one of the things he asks us to do in the realm of forgiveness is to forgive others. A Christian is one who has been forgiven and because of that, becomes one who forgives. As C.S. Lewis said once, the Christian writer and author of the Narnia books, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God forgave the inexcusable in you. Our sin, the Bible tells us, and our experiences, our sin, our tendency to say and think and do the wrong things or to not say and think and do the things we should, it impacts us and it impacts those around us. In the same way, receiving God's forgiveness impacts us 
and will then impact those around us for the positive. Now, this is a challenging and a radical area I know. It's a subject in its own right for another day, really. But let me say, precious as forgiveness is, in forgiving us, God requires us to forgive others. Jesus told a story once about a servant who, despite being forgiven his debts by his master, refused to forgive his fellow servant. And Jesus points out the sobering truth that holding on to unforgiveness puts us in a prison of our own making, one that God cannot release us from until we forgive from the heart. Jesus also taught us, didn't he, when we pray to the Father in heaven, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Extending forgiveness to those who have hurt or offended us is a choice, not a feeling. We are commanded to forgive, and God never commands our feelings. When Peter, the disciple, asked Jesus, well, how many times should we forgive someone? Seven times? Jesus said, no, no, 70 times seven. In other words, we should go on and on forgiving just like God does. You might well say, well, how can I forgive someone who isn't sorry for what they've done? All I can say is this. God forgave me a long time before I was sorry for what I'd done. My repentance didn't trigger God's forgiveness. It just made it possible for me to receive it. This is the other side of the coin of receiving forgiveness. But it doesn't mean that it's easy by any means. It doesn't mean forgetting or excusing wrongdoing, letting people off the hook. It doesn't mean seeking revenge. It means handing it to God to judge, and if appropriate, to early earthly justice. It doesn't mean continuing in abusive situations, tolerating what is wrong. But it does mean a heart change. As I said, it starts with a decision, a choice, not a feeling. And with God's help, we can do it. It may be a process. It may take time. But it's a path we are called to tread. A journey we must take. Fran and I and our team, who who pray with quite a lot of people, either in our individual appointments for prayer, our IAP, or in our Freedom in Christ, we see the power of forgiveness so often, time and again. Only recently, I've seen not one, but, but two people who, in the act of choosing to forgive someone who has wronged them, it opened them up suddenly to see them differently, to see them as God sees them. Going from bitterness even hatred to viewing the person they're forgiving with compassion and with mercy, just like God does. We often see what we call spiritual domino effects, where someone who chooses to forgive releases something in the spiritual dimension. And it leads to changes in a relationship or an interaction with someone else who, unawares of it all, maybe even on the other side of the world, Forgiveness is powerful. We always see forgiveness bringing freedom, 
and peace. There's so much more we could say about forgiveness and how a lack of forgiveness can cause us so many problems. But I want to close by sharing a true story about an inspirational Christian woman, a hero of faith called Corrie Ten Boom that demonstrates better than I could ever say the power of God's forgiveness working through us. Here is just one part of her story. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the doors at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at the Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. 
But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who had nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And thus, having learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. Huh. I wish I could say it was true. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. What an amazing story of the power of God's forgiveness at work. What's your story today? Are you on a journey towards faith? If that's you, then I want to invite you to pray a short prayer with me. It'll come up on the screen. Father God, I know that my life has not been what it could be and should be, and I'm sorry. 
Today, I want to put my trust in your promise, in what you have done for me through Jesus, not to condemn me, but to save me. I want to take up your offer of forgiveness. Please come into my life and fill me with your peace. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, I'd encourage you to tell someone else, someone you trust or contact us here at Hope Church. We'd love to help you on the next steps of your journey. And maybe you're watching and you need to forgive someone. If you're not sure, you can simply ask God. God, is there anyone I need to forgive? And I encourage you to write down the names that come to mind and work through them with God or maybe with a a trusted Christian friend. Remember Corrie Ten Boom's words, forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Here's a simple form of prayer that I find really helpful and that you can use whenever you want. It'll come up on the screen now. I choose to forgive, you put in the name of the person, for what they did do or what they didn't do which made me feel, and then add the painful feelings so that you acknowledge and connect with them before God. I release them now with forgiveness. It can be as simple as that. It may be a journey, but you can start it today. I pray for all of us that we would be those who know the amazing forgiveness of God and who forgive others freely because of it. God bless you.